to my brilliant family and friends, near and far, old and new. This is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the 25th and special mid-season episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. Now, to show support if you like this sort of content, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, and follow at Metaphorogens on Instagram, that's at Metaphorogens, where I'll be posting most of my updates as well as on my personal website, kjbmercurio.com slash Metaphorogens. As a reminder, I'm holding another draw on my 30th episode for the Superfly Butterfly Printed Custom Metaphorogen shirt, so do follow the Instagram page to be placed in the draw. A little bit of grateful cheese. Based on the current statistical trends, this season has raked in a lot of new listeners, consistently averaging close to 50 downloads a week. I'm coming for you, Joe. Honestly, even without considering these statistics, it's been such a blast coming up with ridiculous stories to fit the metaphor intro, brainstorming audio essays regarding communication topics in science and elsewhere, as well as talking with inspiring current and recent graduate students doing amazing work both through academia and their extracurriculars. Thank you to all those who have joined me on the podcast thus far, and to listeners who not only provide useful feedback, but make this personal project even more worthwhile. I'll put this out there publicly. If you're passionate about something and work hard in doing what brings you that passion, I would love to collaborate with you and discuss those topics. Okay, so for today's episode, again, it's a special one. I want to pause on metaphorical origins and talk broadly about a concept every living person has either encountered, promoted, or complained about. Despite your opinions, the idea has a startling impact on all of us through direct and indirect means with positive and negative consequences. A science communication tool every scientist needs to be aware of, and that topic is social media. Sorry was just checking my Twitter feed real quick. Okay. Oh, wait, hold on. I forgot to upload a picture of the podcast setup on my Insta. All right. Okay. Actually, just got a reply to this Facebook Messenger group chat. And... Nice. Uh, What were we talking about again? I've written about social media many times, sometimes via ironic meta-means on social media platforms themselves. I've written a short story published in the Health Science Inquiry Journal called Blue Elephant, describing the micro-stresses all of us pile on top of ourselves when coasting from one platform to the next. I've performed a spoken word in the Canadian Science Grand Slam on the impact technologies like social media had on myself growing up in the 90s and early 2000s. And if we've shared some mealtime together at a restaurant, clinked beer mugs at a pub, or overlooked some natural or man-made beauty on a walk, you know I have some solidified opinions about social media. Let's take a quick tangent into my personal life. In fact, I feel this podcast, like the initial act of writing short stories or poetry and publishing them on my website, has been an additional window into the foundation of my psyche, a platform, whether it is considered part of social media or not, that hones my thoughts into organized pieces and spotlights the main message of my ideals and morals. My introduction to social media began when I saw my brother using MySpace on the family computer. This was probably during the mid-2000s. Remember those years? Remember MySpace at all? 
From its Wikipedia page, between 2005 and 2008, it was the largest networking site in the world. And in June 2006, even surpassed Yahoo and Google as the most visited website in the United States. How unthinkable that is now. However, towards the middle of 2008, I remember, like it was yesterday, my brother invited me to make a Facebook account. I was reluctant at first because not only did I not have very many friends, most of my friends were still my elementary school friends, to which we had a graduating class of around eight students, but I mainly used my computer to play those Disney related video games you get when you buy certain breakfast cereals, which on their own are an interesting topic for discussion some other day. Why I remember it so vividly is because after making an account and garnering a friends list of people who I just knew at my high school, I quickly recruited other friends of mine to join the social networking site as well. It was a snowball effect I never truly understood until, honestly, very recent. Think about what it was like at the beginning stages of social media to kids who are striving to collect any sort of confidence boost. With this revolutionary idea, there wasn't this unsaid hierarchy of social groups at school. You could visually see who was connected to who and who you wanted to be connected with because of who they were connected with. To be part of the ongoing updates of your peers around the same time fear of missing out or FOMO was just coined. To this day, we've laid the neuronal wiring to forage for this level of connectivity without thinking about it strenuously from the very beginning. If social media were a drug, like it has been associated by、uh, professionals in both big pharma and big tech, it is regulated as if the drug were marketed well before it was even reached phase one clinical trials. And sure, perhaps the creators of these platforms never would have imagined the colossal integration of their ideas in the modern world. Take Facebook, for example. If David Fincher's The Social Network has taught me anything other than the glorification of tech giant CEOs, It's that the original idea of Facebook was to rate Harvard College students on their hotness. Yet we forget that, right? When we think how useful it is to remind us of family and friends' birthdays, plan events, and react to posts or pictures on people's profiles. I'll draw the line here and stop lamenting on how disappointed I am with how social media has shaped my life and the lives of those around me. Disappointed not because I think me or others could have changed its course in any way, but because we were all selected to be part of this worldwide experiment without even being aware of it. I shit on this topic quite often. And you could easily, just by a quick Google search and brief look at my online footprint, call me out as a hypocrite. I have a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Reddit, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Slack, Discord, personal blog, and those are just the general accounts. I could argue that I have disciplined myself to limit my time on social media, for example, literally limiting my access to social media throughout the day or deciding on my purpose for being on certain platforms, but that doesn't change the fact that despite this awareness, I still continue to use social media. This is absolutely correct, and perhaps I've dug myself. Into an even deeper hole than most. But for now, I want to focus on purpose, as this might be the only silver lining I see with social media. Why do we use social media? In a 2018 article published on the very meta named Worsum, which stands for We Are Social Media, they summarized Global Web Index's 2017 findings with the top 10 reasons why people use social media listed in ascending order starting at number 10 to meet new people. To research new products to buy, to share opinions, to share photos or videos, because friends are on them, to network, 
to find entertaining content, to fill up spare time, to stay up to date, and at number one, to stay in touch with family and friends. The pathos of this list is the realization of how what's tooted as the benefits of social media are mostly at the bottom half of that list. In my view, and the essential question to which I've tackled this mental dilemma of mine, is what if we actively flip that list upside down? Techniques to do this, discussed more in detail later in this episode, would be to either habitually perform the bottom of the list functions, most could be categorized as engage with your social network, or ferociously counter the urges at the top of the list, like to waste spare time. Staying in touch with family and friends is certainly important, but you don't have to be doing that 24-7, or with family and friends you wouldn't normally just call or meet for a hangout. The most successful technique I've implemented to support me in this regard is to define your purpose on social media. And yes, here, I will finally tie everything back to the overall idea of this podcast episode. I want to use social media to share my passions and inspire those to work on their own. Specifically, I want to communicate science in ways that are creative and eye-catching, ways that capture your attention in both the topic scope and in the method of delivery. I want to use social media to meet people that inspire, to share opinions, modify them if need be, and provide up-to-date entertaining scientific content. That's what this episode will encompass, using social media to communicate science to those in the scientific community and those in the general public. I will reiterate the general hindrances scientists have when talking about science, opinions of researchers who use or choose not to use social media in their work, and certain platforms believed to be the best at science communication. Towards the end, I have invited a special guest who uses various social media platforms to spread her own passion of science communication via creative organizations with innovative ideas social media might actually be best summed up through words uttered by the great T.S. Eliot in 1936, well before the time of social media and the internet. Quote, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning. We correctly have funneled our attention to some virtual entity when the current moment is deemed too boring or even on the other extreme too overwhelming to be present for. Instead of being distracted by the distractions stopping us from reaching our fullest potential with distractions that only provide negative consequences, let's choose to distract ourselves with distractions that might allow us to learn more about why we are distracted and how exactly to distract others in more useful ways. Are you with me? Most of this information was obtained from many articles and videos discussing the role social media plays in everyday life and in science communication. All sources we mentioned in the description. When you hear the words communication, science, and media, what thoughts race into your mind? Visual stills of Bill Nye the Science Guy's TV show watched via VHS tapes in every North American elementary school? How about YouTube channels like Kutzgazat and any SciShow variation? Twitter accounts of outspoken physicists or evolutionary biologists? The surge of scientifically related TikToks by graduate students or even faculty professors from distinguished institutions? 
an endless sea of podcasts on general topics like science versus those hosted by scientific journals or those specializing in scientific fields, personal blogs like Tim Urban's Wait But Why with ridiculous premises, comics like XKCD illustrating the non-intuitive coolness of scientific concepts. I could continue, but I think you get the picture. All of these constitute a vast web of SciComm ideas that inundate our social media feeds. But of course, I have to start with origins. Lexico.com defines social media as, quote, websites and applications that enable users to create and share content or to participate in social networking. Now, there are debates on how social media came about. Regarding the history of social media, some news sources like Small Business Trends speak about the invention of the telegraph, pneumatic posts, telephones, and radio, implying the ability to deliver messages from a sender to a recipient was the advent of social media. Additional news sites like Interesting Engineering also mentions the development of early versions of the internet, like CompuServe in the 60s, along with primitive versions of virtual communications like email through Usenet towards the 80s. Mass emailing via services like Listserv, still used by individuals and institutes alike, was created around this time. The palace, created in the mid-90s, permitted users to communicate in online chat rooms. This laid the foundation for the first social media website. Mentioned in an article published on Wondropolis, quote, The first social media site was Six Degrees, made by Andrew Weinreich in 1997. To this day, it is still an active platform, and visiting the website, it almost feels like stepping into the past with its simple web layout design. On its homepage, it laments the reasoning for its name, quote, Six degrees of separation is the idea that all living things and everything else in the world is six or fewer steps away from each other. How beautiful a notion that anyone on this planet could be connected to people through a maximum of six friend-of-a-friend statements. This is different from the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, in which everyone in Hollywood could be linked through six connections or less to actor Kevin Bacon based on the movies and co-stars he's acted with. Though, as stated in the adorable BuzzFeed video of Bacon himself playing the connection game, most have a Bacon score of only two. Summarizing the path elucidated on interesting engineering, towards the beginning of the new millennium, social sites emerged from the ether. Blogging began to catch on with sites like LiveJournal. The ad revenue social media model debuted with LunarStorm in 2000. Friendster amassed a huge following after its creation in 2002. Specialized social sites for music like Last.fm and business like LinkedIn followed suit. General players in the social media pipeline like MySpace and Flickr appeared in 2003. YouTube opened its doors in 2005, thus leading to today's model social giants like Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, and WeChat in China. With a saturation of businesses came platforms that we consider more controversial today. Platforms integrating revolutionary privacy ideas like Minds, or doubling down on its belief of freedom of speech like Gab and Parler. The latter now kicked off Amazon's web servers and tech giants Google and Apple's mobile app stores due to its role in the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. We went from an aching desire to communicate to our fellow human beings, to being connected to them for longer periods of our daily life, to discovering virtual communities where we could socialize with our friends and strangers, to organize violence due to information shared at lightning speed. 
how far we've journeyed to believing in the spread of information to the debate about misinformation in parallel with the fight for preservation of speaking openly about ideas. The system to which we've all co-signed our involvement in developing that anyone has the right to provide information, to be informed, and participate in these activities has permitted this divisive attitude towards the role social media plays in society. Surely by now we've all watched the documentaries about the astonishing influence companies like Facebook have on entire countries such as the US or Myanmar, or the cases of doxing in which personal information is publicized by opponents or anonymous users of platforms like Twitter and Reddit. And the solutions to these issues? Censorship. Removing posts that are obviously incorrect or unsafe to spotlight pieces of information that are safe and backed by evidence. I won't debate here on whether this tactic directly solves the underlying issue or is just a temporary fix in the heterogeneous mixture of thinking we observe among the global community of people. Science finds itself at the front lines of this redundant battle over facts. Proponents for science repeat time and time again in unison the almost unanimous conclusions of experiments conducted to study the universe, while opponents cherry-pick the studies that fit their underlying motives. You see this in the discussion about the seriousness of climate change, the effectiveness of vaccines, and even the shape of the earth. Organized through social media features and multiplied via word of mouth, these echo chambers on both sides become just as polarized as political beliefs. How do experts and non-experts reach a civilized resolution to debates that seem to be never-ending? It is my own belief that scientists, both old and young, both seasoned in the workings of academia or not, were never ready for the supernova expansion of social media. The act of figuring out what engages with the general public about science through this online medium, the realization that no matter what profession you have, no matter what subject you study, no matter what social status you have in your networks, people are genuinely interested in the discoveries of science. Science has the capability of content creation and, quote, going viral, just like cultural memes or cat videos. Sure, the communicators that come to mind are the archetypical scientists I've mentioned at the beginning of this segment, video creators of YouTube, TED speakers, scientists who appear on the Joe Rogan experience like those part of the intellectual dark web, but they don't have to be. I probably follow over 500 researchers or academics who I happen to come across doing interesting work. These include people like Daria Nguyen, dubbing cultural references to known scientific concepts on at-lab shenanigans, to science communicators in public domains such as Toronto Intersections, like Samantha Yasmin, aka Science Sam, to audio masters like Jesse Lupini for podcasts on Avo Media. They come in all genders, races, experiences, short-form or long-form formats, pushing the idea that science is interesting and here's a clear reason why. Science needs people to communicate effectively to non-scientists. And yet, I guarantee that all these people did not get trained on how to communicate science to the general public through their studies. In fact, any techniques learned in higher-level education seem to specialize more and more, increasing jargon instead of expanding on the more simplified vernacular. It pushes public discourse to divisive thinking and makes them feel inadequate in participating in the discussion, not to voice whether some theory is correct, like academics rightfully do, but to probe questions to help them understand the theory itself. Now, this mentality seems to be changing. 
the American Association for the Advancement of Science dedicates itself to enhanced communication among scientists and the public. In its workshop on science communication and public engagement, speaker Mary Longshore stresses three fundamental strategies to participate on social media. One, define what is your goal. Two, define who is your audience. And three, define what is your message. These three questions should be in the back of every scientist's mind when posting on social media. Regarding goals, in a 2020 blog post on the journal publisher Hindawi, Director of Science Communication at Life Omic, Dr. Paige Giroux, states the common goals that scientists have for using social media. Quote, I want to advance my scientific career and have impact in my field. I want to become a better science communicator. I want to inspire future scientists. I want more people to understand what it looks like to be a scientist in my field. And lastly, I want to help non-experts make better decisions in their lives based on science. Whatever your goal may be, it's important to ensure you've clearly identified what that is before turning on the media machine. Your audience may be what defines how you use social media. For more general science communication, the public would likely be the most desired audience, seeing as they have the power to spread your message and even affect policy. Governments are catching on to the importance of science communication via online means in actively changing public opinion. A 2016 report published in the European Commission as part of the Science for Environmental Policy's thematic issue titled, quote, Creating Buzz for Impact, Twitter and New Media Science Communication, policy advisors sent a survey to 241 scientists working on nanoparticles to determine if there were noticeable differences in the amount of public engagement and the impact of their work. Quote, The boundaries that have traditionally separated scientists, journalists, and the public are becoming blurred and scientists should adapt to this new landscape in order for their work to be understood and for it ultimately to have meaningful impact for society. Some researchers began collecting more and more opinions from their peers about the effective usage of social media regarding science communication. One 2016 study published in PLOS One titled, quote, How are scientists using social media in the workplace? surveyed 587 scientists from various academic disciplines on how they use social media both privately among their peers and publicly. Among the respondents, the most used social media platforms were the following, Twitter at 88%, Facebook at 82%, and LinkedIn at 66%. This was vastly different from the results obtained from the general public, who reported using Facebook at 93%, YouTube at 62%, and Twitter at 36%. This certainly makes sense as the function of these sorts of platforms, since while Twitter and LinkedIn are more associated with news updates and networking, Facebook is predominantly used to keep in touch with family and friends. Also mentioned in the study, quote, when queried specifically about their use of blogs as a form of social media, the majority of scientists at 92% indicated that they read science blogs, and many reported they have shared blog posts with professional colleagues at 84%. While only half had authored a blog themselves, the majority at 89% indicated that they believed that blogs do a good job explaining science to the public. Authors do note a predominance in responses from those in life sciences. This is easy for those who have grown up during the expansion of social media. For others, there's issues with the usage of social media for science at all. 
in a separate 2017 study published in the online journal First Monday titled, quote, Social Media, Science Communication, and the Academic Superusers in the UK, authors do a fantastic job summarizing the literature on the debate about effective science communication through social media. Through in-person scoping interviews and a national survey of researchers in the UK, over 1,800 responses were analyzed on the attitudes of using social media in research work. Interestingly, there's a high percentage of researchers who agree that communicating research on social media benefits the public at 54%, that social media promotes their professional profile at 44%, and that social media helps find collaboration opportunities at 39%. Results also indicate negative opinions, that research published on social media cannot be trusted at 58%, and that communicating research on social media may result in plagiarism at 45%. To me, these sorts of statements are interesting as they are framed in a way such that disagreeing with them just feels wrong. Of course, one who journeyed through the academic gauntlet will want to review any claims or studies made in the public domain, and of course, things mentioned in a public domain can be plagiarized or scooped, discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. The pros do seem to outweigh the cons, as mentioned in the article, quote, Even so, it is likely that the number of academics using social media in their research will continue to increase. Some UK academics cited the number of Twitter followers they had in their 2014 Research Excellence Framework, or REF, impact statements. The REF determines the allocation of much of the government funding for higher education in the UK. Now that we talked about goals and audiences, what is your message? What is the key idea you want your audience to conceptualize and thus inch closer to your overall goal? This will certainly vary depending on your discipline or field of interest, and once decided will likely affect which platforms you choose to use, just like when deciding on an audience. Science blogger and PhD student at the University of Gothenburg, Sina Borcher, writes about how to choose the platform that best spreads your message. To summarize, Facebook has the largest potential audience and most freedom in delivering your message. Twitter is great for sharing eye-catching pieces of information with the retweet function surpassing the limits of how much followers an account has. Instagram is a great visual-based medium for well-designed infographics, and TikTok is a completely video-based platform for concise clips of information. Now, this only captures what I would consider short-form content, which might be appealing to not just the general population, but to scientists who might not have a lot of free time for long-form content like science blogging, YouTube videos, or podcasts like this one. Although I do all those and lots of short-form content as well, maybe I have too much free time. Really, I just recommend to try everything and see what best suits you based on your goals, target audience, and key messages. I bring us now to the end of this segment. I found this was a lot more difficult to write than I anticipated, and that's not because there's not a whole lot of information for one to read or hear or watch about social media and how science communication fits into the monstrous system. In fact, there might be too much, as I'm sure I missed some information that you may deem relevant. I guess I've come to the realization that there's no one-size-fits-all for everyone. Whether you like using social media or not will probably be your deciding factor on how large your online footprint will become. What's interesting in devising this episode is that I have such negative thoughts about social media, and yet I definitely use it more than those I know who like using social media. 
And I think that's only because I've understood the negative impact of its improper usage and only use it for a purpose to share interesting information to people who might find it useful. I want the public to be inspired by the work researchers and content creators like yourselves are doing and communicate that passion you have in your work in an engaging way to ignite the curiosity in everyone. Science can discover that, social media can deliver that. We just need to tell the story. Before we get to the next segment, do you love listening to podcasts? If you're like myself, you may have contemplated even starting a podcast yourself. Let me tell you, as one of the many ways one can creatively express themselves, starting this podcast was one of the best decisions I have ever made. For one thing, it sort of gives you an excuse to learn about things you actually are interested in and understand it by speaking to an audience about it. For another, it has given me the opportunity to meet other podcasters and other science communicators who inspire me in their own creative endeavors. The problem in starting something new is that it may be difficult to know where to start. That's where Buzzsprout comes in. Buzzsprout is a seamless service that helps one launch a professional podcast with over 100,000 people supported on their platform. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Additionally, you get a sweet-looking podcast website, detailed analytics to support the growth of your show, by far the greatest feature, methods of promoting and marketing your show, the list goes on. And of course, the Buzzsprout community of experts and podcast hosts offers great tips via online forums, YouTube videos, and even quick podcast episodes themselves. To start your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card you can use towards simple podcast equipment you may need, Click the affiliate link in the episode's description. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you to their service and will help support Metaforigens in money towards creating more butterfly merch. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. And now, back to the episode. For today's episode, I'll be interviewing someone who has that unique perspective in using social media in effective ways to spread her passion for science communication someone who has taken the time to reflect on how this tool has impacted her entire way of life. She's the social media coordinator for Science Slam Canada and the co-founder of the Science Networkers podcast. She obtained her Bachelor of Science in Physiology and Neuroscience, as well as a Diploma in Human Resource Management. She combines her educational and professional backgrounds in science and HR to build community projects and provide career resources and networking opportunities for those interested in pursuing science communication. Please welcome the supremely gifted Pooja Bhatti. Yeah, so thank you, Pooja, for for coming on this podcast. I'll reiterate again, uh, just because it's recording now, this was a pretty clear choice on who I wanted for this podcast episode specifically. And just to like get the listeners aware of you know how we know each other, um, I've never actually met Pooja in person. <laughs> <laughs> 
she hasn't met her co-host of the podcast she's she's founded, which is no. which I found was pretty funny. But yeah, I, I haven't met Pooja in person, but we we did collaborate on uh, different podcast projects that we both work on obviously the podcast that that i'm doing so she's collaborating with me and then i went on their podcast uh, as part of the digital media panel where we kind of talked about science communication in terms of the digital realm doing it on on the internet um, through different mediums like podcasting or uh, different social media avenues so again i was honored to be a part of that i think i was <laughs> definitely not up to uh the status as the other panelists uh that were that were there participating but again honored to be a part of it well to and, put it in perspective we're doing this podcast episode and i'm using in headphones that came with my iphone so <laughs> i think you're a little more along than you think but <laughs> <laughs> this mic is actually the uh, I guess the most recommended from the podcast host, like they promote this this mic, so that's like okay, I'll just I'll just get the mic that they all their um, members to to get. It seems to be working out okay, and it looks it looks professional. I think that's the that's the point of it. <laughs> and yeah, so just to I'll just introduce Pooja quickly. I before the this segment, I I've introduced you already, but just to reiterate again, um, Pooja did her Bachelor of Science in Physiology and Neuroscience. She also has a diploma in Human Resources, so it'd be interesting to hear how she transitioned into Human Resources. She's also the Social Media Coordinator for Science Slam Canada, and also participated in Science Slam Canada. And <laughs> just to toot your own horn, look at her YouTube rap videos about neuroscience. And uh, there's also one about mental health, which I just listened to right before our talk. Oh, uh, boy, were... <laughs> the sound quality was not great in that one, so I never promote that one. I'm like, oh, God, no, no. But, okay, thank you for listening to it. doesn't have nearly as many views as the other one. But it does have this killer line that you said, um, voices running around in my head, feeling like the monster from that song by Eminem. I, I really <laughs> like that line. <laughs> I forgot about that line. <laughs> There's always a reference to Eminem. I, I even I did a rap song about uh, the citric acid cycle using an Eminem song. So uh, I just like really connected with that line. She's the co-founder as well of Science Networkers, which we've kind of mentioned already, the, the podcast that she hosts with Miranda Stan. Uh, yeah, so I was a part of that digital panel back in how long ago? That was a wa- that was a while ago, wasn't it? That was November. What is time like, though in COVID? Yeah, was that four <laughs> four or five months, year. It's, it all feels like a blur now. But maybe you can just expand a little bit for for the listeners. Um, talk about your experience in academia. Maybe a bit more about your bachelor of science and your previous extracurriculars. And again, what you're doing now in terms of uh, your professional career and other extracurriculars you're a part of for sure so first of all thank you for having me on your podcast i'm incredibly incredibly excited i love your show (laughs) all the compliments all the promos thank you so much for having me so yeah so i completed my bachelor's of science in physiology and neuroscience from the university of british columbia and while I was pursuing my bachelor's, it was always into poetry and going up on stage and performing. And a friend had told me, hey, there's this organization called Science on Canada. They're running this slam event. You should look into it because it seems like it's something very up your alley. And I thought, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. It turned out it was Science Slam's inaugural event. It was their very first event. 
Oh, I found out later I was their first applicant and I also was their first performer. They drew my name out of the hat. That's where the first ended. I've never won a science slam. They call me a champion to make me feel better about myself. I've actually never won. I did get second place, so I will I will take that okay. win. Uh, so I wrote a rap about neuroscience. Neuroscience, I love neuroscience. I was especially very interested in how drugs and disorders affect the brain, which affect our way of living. And so for the first slam, it wasn't quite as heavy as the second. It was just about the basics of neuroscience. And I rapped about it to the music of Joints and Jam by Black Eyed Peas when they were pre-Fergie. So this was back in the 90s. People really loved it. And I was really taken aback because it was just some dumb hobby that I had of making rap songs and making poems for my friends. But the audience was really into it and they really liked it. And I was approached by Nerd Night Vancouver who was at the event, uh, who asked me to perform for one of their events. That was how my involvement in Science Slam really came to be. I performed at their events. I eventually was hosting some of their events. And then I became a full-time volunteer. And they needed someone to operate their social media. So I took that on and I've been doing that ever since. Now, you mentioned I'm actually in human resources. So while I was in sciences, I love sciences, but I discovered that I didn't want to do it professionally. It was just not for me, um, but I still love the topic. And that's what I love about SciComm and Science Slam is that I was still able to be part of that community. But I got really involved in student government. And that's actually how I got so involved in social media because you needed to use social media to run in campaigns. Through my positions in student government, I did a lot of HR type things. And I said, this is really cool. Can I do this? And that's when I pursued HR and that's what I do professionally. Having that science HR background is actually what eventually led to science networkers coming to be. So I was in a science lab meeting and Miranda Stan was in that meeting and Alan Shapiro, who is brought up a lot in our podcast, said, hey, at the time, Miranda was working in, in science HR, and he had said, you know, there's kind of an interesting niche here. You have this science background, SciComm background, you have this HR background. Maybe you can combine it and make an event that helps people understand how to network in the SciComm community, how they can find their career. We ended up running with it. We weren't working. We thought, you know what, this might be a fun thing to do. But it ended up blowing up and people were really into what we were offering. So we thought, hey, why don't we why don't we make this a thing? And that's how Science Networkers came to be. And that's also something that I'm fully involved in now with Miranda. The purpose of that is to help people understand how they can network in the community, how they can get their foot into the door in this SciComm space. And as someone who's not a professional scientist, but still on your podcast, I think I've kind of figured it out. So uh, that's a lot of what I do now is uh, attending different events and running events myself and workshops uh, to help people enter the space. Awesome. Your podcast is also, I think you're releasing a new or it already happened, your latest event, right? So in honor of the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, we had a full female panel uh, talking about being a woman in SciComm, which is definitely... Mm -hmm 
quite a different space than being a male in SciComm or being non-binary in SciComm. And it was a really, really fantastic conversation with three amazing women, all represented different different parts of SciComm, very different backgrounds, came from different places. It was a really phenomenal conversation about the pressures of being a woman in SciComm and how we try to find our space in this community. Interviews with those panelists, as well as the event, they are being released on our podcast. We've already released the episode with Divyani Singh, who I really connected with because she is an Indian woman in SciComm, and I don't see that represented a lot. So as a fellow Indian woman in SciComm, I was fangirling over her on that episode. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I see me in a few years. So that was right. really exciting. Yeah, I did listen to that episode, and she also ran for office, um, which is something that not a lot of SciCommers do, but perhaps, you know, that seems like a, a nice avenue for uh, people who are good at communicating science, or people that are a part of these different um, these different groups within science who might not be represented very well. It's just nice to to hear that she went for it. Absolutely, because I think as we all recognize, you know, science and science communication is not just for scientists. It's for everybody. Science affects us all, and to have a scientist and a psychomer in that political space to really advocate for what is going on in the world and what needs to be communicated, it was really substantial. And I think she definitely made some strides in that space. And in terms of Science Slam Canada, it, it's too bad that these events, they seem to be, you know, very crowd-centric, kind of feed off the energy of the crowd. Obviously, with the pandemic, these in-person gatherings um, have been decreased or been cancelled altogether. Science Slam Canada is ramping up in terms of hosting more virtual events for people to to come and hear about the science that's happening in Canada? Yeah, so that is the direction that we're moving in right now. We were facing very similar pressures as everybody else that people love Science Slam because it's a chance to get together and there's the audience that, you know, they're encouraging you and you feed off of that. But moving into the virtual space, we've, we've actually found that people really responded to that quite well. People were... Mm-hmm still excited to attend science slams. They still wanted to see what was out there. It's a very different space than other science communication spaces because it, and this is one thing that I love about science slam is that it allows you to communicate science in any way that you want to. And I think with it being virtual, one of the advantages is that things were in person. Vancouver was doing its own thing. Ottawa was doing its own thing. Every chapter was doing its own thing. And now we've become really collaborative as a country to work together, all the volunteers, all the hosts, all the performers are from all across the country. And we've even seen that because it's moving more online, it's a little bit of a more comfortable space for some people because it's not in front of a big audience and it's a little bit more disconnected. So we've had people from early high school come and participate and it's been absolutely phenomenal. So I think it's really easy to look at at the downsides of what's going on. But at the same time, it's also opened up some new opportunities that even post-pandemic, we can still take advantage of. Shoutouts to Keanu. He's a a great slam poet. I I was lucky enough to be a part of the Grand Slam Canada. And uh, yeah, he was a a part of that as well. Phenomenal piece that he presented about mitosis. Like Science Slam Canada, you do a lot of promotional and social media like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So Mm -hmm. you have those three accounts there. And the segment before this was me kind of talking about social media, uh, I, I do talk a lot about social media, <laughs> both in positive and, and negative respects. It kind of seems like I talk about it in a negative fashion most of the time, but 
I, I do address and acknowledge that there's a lot of positive that can come out of social media. In the segment before this, I talking about my my origin to social media, how it all like started for me back when I was, uh, I guess, just starting high school. So that was and that was a long time ago. So I want to just kind of talk about that with you and discuss our origins in social media. So again, I talked about um, my introduction to social media was th- through my my older brother, who um, was really into MySpace um, when. I guess social media began or started to like pick up pace. But my first account was was Facebook, and he recruited me to that. When I joined Facebook, there wasn't a whole lot of people on it from my high school, um, so I started recruiting my friends on it. They started recruiting their friends, and it just became this crazy snowball effect that I guess social media is just known for now. So I was wondering what your first account was on on social media and. What interested you about joining that platform at the time? Now, if we're going way back in the archives, if we're way really dating ourselves, I feel like technically my first social media account was MSN Messenger. I feel like technically that that was like if you had a Hotmail account or an MSN account, it's instant messaging. But if we're talking about the more what people know as social media today. You and I actually have very similar stories. My first account was Facebook that I got right when I entered high school, the summer before I entered. So I was 13 years old. So that was also a very long time ago. (laughs) And I was also introduced to it by my older brother and also my parents, actually. They were the ones that encouraged me to get it. I know, it's it's kind of strange. Their thoughts were, you're entering high school. A lot of people are probably going to be using the social media platform. This might help you feel more connected let's let's give this a try. Why don't you get an account? I entered Facebook actually a little bit later than other people. I've, I've always, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting because I moderate so many social media accounts, but I'm actually, I was actually pretty late to the game in most social media. <laughs> so people were already on Facebook and they were using it. And Facebook was a very different place back in oh, the yeah. day. People were using it. You couldn't instant message people. You would write on people's walls. Who writes on people's walls these days, except maybe their birthday? I still remember that you could purchase stickers. I know the origins of Facebook was to rate people, rate people on their hotness. And there was actually, it wasn't rating people on their hotness, but it would say like, do you think X person is good looking? Do you think X person could win a million dollars? And you would vote yes or no. So it was a very strange space. That's where it all started for me. It's interesting that your parents thought of it as a good idea to to network right i guess that would be the, the yeah. big takeaway from their advice to to meet people who are would that be high school 13 yes or middle so school grade so, eight. yeah it's interesting that your parents encourage you to do that while today in modern times it, it seems like almost parents are reluctant to have their children on social media for sure yeah we didn't know what the potential social media was back no one then. did nobody did you know again their thought was you're entering a new school you're going to be meeting new people this is how people stay connected why don't you give this a try i also i have cousins and relatives that live all over the world and that was really what fascinated people to social media at the time was oh my goodness i have this cousin living in india or in africa which i do and i can now talk to them that was also an additional reason why i was encouraged to get 
Facebook. That's a good point. And it's definitely like the number one reason why if you look at different surveys, people are on social media is to connect with long distance family and, and friends. Um, for myself, even I've, I've connected with a lot of a lot of my own family members, a lot of cousins, aunts and uncles, plenty of them in the Philippines who I've I've never met. I would say 90 percent of my family I, ha- I have not met yet. But I, I just know them through social media, and I'm curious. Did you did you notice your behavior, personality change as you used more and more of Facebook and other social media platforms from from then on? I absolutely did. I really reflected on my use of social media, and it was a little bit shocking uh, for what <laughs> I realized. So when I got Facebook, I was completely myself. I posted whatever I wanted. I wrote whatever I wanted. I didn't really care. I thought, oh, this is a really fun space and I can be goofy on it. And and I think at the time, people were still trying to figure out Facebook. Kind of anything was welcome at the time. But as I got older, I started to notice people would post photos of themselves and especially girls would post photos of themselves. Their photos would get lots and lots of likes. Mine wouldn't. And still to this day, I don't get nearly as many likes as a lot of people. That is the honest truth. I started to wonder, am I not as pretty as these other girls? Do people not like me as much as as these other girls? It started to really make me feel insecure. And then as I got even older, then Instagram became a thing. And again, similar to Facebook, I joined Instagram quite later in the game. It took me a really long time to join Instagram. And Instagram is all about photos. I would see peers getting hundreds and hundreds of likes. It really made me doubt my appearance or who I was. In the past few years, tagging has been a really big thing. People tag their friends on things. If you go on Facebook, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, tag a friend you want to go get a drink with. Tag a friend who uh, you really miss. I started to really overanalyze when I wouldn't get tagged in things or when people wouldn't post photos with me. It actually came to a point where I remember confronting a really close friend about it saying, you don't post photos of us. Are you embarrassed to be friends with me? Like I was so insecure about it. In which they responded, Pooja, we don't have photos together. (laughs) But it really goes to show, I and and I think as someone who's been operating social media accounts for so long, I've been doing it for almost five years, setting that boundary of social media, even if you want to take a break from it, you almost can't. Because if I take a break from social media, who's going to run the Sign Slam account? Yeah, it's come to a point where now, if I'm honest, on my Instagram, I don't really post photos of myself anymore uh i posted one photo in the entirety of 2020 and it was for my best friend's birthday you know it was a goofy photo i didn't care about likes i just wanted to honor their birthday but yeah if i'm being completely honest it 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 definitely had an impact on how i perceive myself and i've had to set boundaries with how i use social media i feel like this isn't an uncommon story i feel like there are a lot of people that can say that social media has kind of made them feel insecure has made them doubt who they are. I'm glad you 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 said all that because even for myself also reasons why I don't like posting pictures of myself. I I do like maybe posting pictures of scenery or cool little objects like like my Nintendo Switch or something or something like I find interesting. I would share that maybe on on social media. I didn't really care about how I look like pre-social media. But as soon as social media came about and when I when I joined it and I would post pictures of myself again it's just like the counting of likes and and comments I would I would compare different photos and see like oh which ones brought me the most likes how how can I copy that so that 
that stays consistent, if not grow in terms of um, the, those number of likes and comments. I also feel that deep down in my heart to just kind of limit the amount of pictures you, you put up only because of how you overanalyze these sorts of things. That's why I, I post on stories now because, you know, if I take a photo that I think I look really good in, I'll just post it on my story. It's there for 24 hours and most people don't comment on your story. They just view it. And you get to share an experience you had or a photo you think you look really good. And for me personally, I don't obsess as much about whether people like it. And you're right. It At the end of the day, and I think we all know that it doesn't matter. And there could be lots of reasons you don't get likes. It's algorithm. It's how many followers you have. It, it's how many friends you have. Sometimes friends just like each other's and maybe you are just not as popular as other people. And that's okay. But it, it can definitely make you feel very bad about yourself the follower thing is is also an interesting topic because you might be able to relate to this so when i promote my podcast or i don't know maybe some writing that i do um on the on the side like short fiction writing uh, i do this through instagram there I, I have separate accounts for these for these projects of mine ever since i did that created these accounts for them i would get emails from people who have businesses that help promote your your business, I guess. Uh, normally it would be a business, but I'm not making money off these things. It's just <laughs> some cool things that I do, uh, I find interesting. Um, but they would message me saying that, you know, for, for a certain price, uh, we can guarantee this many followers, this many additional followers to you, to you or uh, this many likes for, for your pictures, um, this many comments for your pictures. And, you know, I was curious. So I, you know, I, I paid for a package um, this was for my creative writing account. And I won't say who the business was because although I, I disagree with their business model, if people really want to do it, it it's a cheap thing to do. And, um, you know, feel free to do it if this is what you like. Um, but I did pay for their cheapest package. Uh, they they boosted my following to over 1,500 followers. Wow. However, upon looking into these followers, a lot of them are fake bots. A yeah. lot of them, like maybe I would say 95% of these 1500 new followers I got all fake. The credibility of my account would go down because these are obviously fake accounts. Uh, I had to go through all 1500 of these new followers and delete them. <laughs> that took weeks <laughs> and I paid no, for the I can service. Imagine. Oh. So, and the, these sorts of, um, these sorts of business models, these sorts of uh, packages, these must be available to the people that have, I guess, what are called influencers who have millions of followers. Maybe they didn't, but they must have collaborated with these businesses to boost their followings. And then from then on, uh, with, with all these fake accounts, gathered more more real people and made their made their accounts more credible. For sure. Yeah, that's that's usually the strategy. It's it's also when you go to people and you say, hey, can you like my photo? Can you uh, retweet this? Yeah. Can you uh, and something I find we'll probably that so talk awkward. About it. But something we'll probably talk about later is that that can be a useful strategy. Uh, but definitely that that is the thinking behind it is to get as many numbers as many people, even if it's fake, liking and and kind of bringing your your account up on the algorithm so that it's more visible. In terms of, I guess, your general view of social media, do, would you say that it serves to benefit us more or do more harm than good? I look at social media like a tool. Any tool can benefit us and can also destroy us. 
If you look at fire is to keep us warm, it's to bring us light, it's to cook our food. It can also burn your house down. It can also, Mm -hmm. if the ashes come in your system, it could kill you. It could burn your skin. I don't want to speak for other people. I know for me and for the insecurities that I feel around my social media use, these insecurities about my appearance or about my relationship with people actually stem from pre-social media. So they were actually, I something I'm pretty open about is I was bullied pretty severely uh, for almost my entire childhood about my looks and about pretty much everything about me. And I think having social media sort of brought it to light. Of So if I wasn't getting as many yes. likes as other people, I thought, oh, so these bullies were right. I am ugly. Or if I wasn't getting tagged or, oh, these bullies were right. I don't have any friends. So I'm not sure if I can confidently say that social media cause these insecurities i think it just brought it to light a bit more absolutely social media can be a very dark place and it's been a topic of conversation and there have been documentaries about it but at the same time i have to acknowledge the fact that social media is is why i'm talking to you right now so as we mentioned science networkers miranda and i have never met in person our entire work has been through social media Science Networkers as an organization, because we started this in the pandemic, the only way we could promote it was through social media. There was no word of mouth. There was no old school posters or going in classrooms. All we could use was Twitter and Instagram to get the word out there. And it, and it brought this success. As we mentioned, it, it does connect people and it gives people a voice. There are people that are held more accountable because of social media. You can't just say what you want and think or do what you want and think that you'll get away with it because it'll probably show up on social media, which, yeah, there's a lot of concerns about that with respect to privacy and what's private, what's not, is anything private anymore. But it gives people a voice. It allows for movements to happen. It allows for people to be aware. Again, I think social media is a tool and there are ways to use it that it can benefit you but it can absolutely destroy you and I think it's very important to set boundaries around it it might mean blocking people it might mean I personally don't have a snapchat and I don't have a reddit there are some accounts I just reddit especially uh in student government reddit was pop was usually used but it was used to really talk uh, at uh at the people who were in office so i if you you can search up my name you will probably find me on reddit and so i i never got a reddit account because i just i couldn't handle such negative comments so it's setting those boundaries i think there is a way that you can use social media and have it in your existence and it's about using it wisely yeah reddit is reddit is quite uh, an interesting place uh, I'll, I'll we'll leave it at that maybe <laughs> speaking of boundaries though so question i was thinking about for this for this discussion was that um, social media especially for me I, at least i can relate to this use personally and for your work or extracurriculars that you're interested in for myself i find that different accounts that i have are just solely personal like facebook i would say for me is solely personal but then if you you go to my twitter account it's also it's personal and also um stuff i do for school stuff i do for this podcast and uh, different writing projects that i'm a part of i find that these these sorts of boundaries that that you discussed personal use and work use these boundaries are starting to get blurred do you think that accounts are truly separate do you also believe that these <laughs> the, that social media has become these blurred lines between personal life 
and the work that you do. I absolutely think the lines are blurred. And it's not just in social media. I think a big reason for that is if you meet somebody, you know, the day we can meet people in person again, and they ask you, tell me about yourself. What do people usually go to? They usually go to what they do professionally. I would usually say, oh, I'm an HR practitioner and a science communicator. But that's not who I am. That's what I do. And I think even in the social media space, I'll talk about myself personally, but I've noticed this is pretty much the case with almost every science communicator. Science Networkers has a Twitter account. It has a certain number of followers and we tweet from that account about our work and about what other people are doing. But in our bio, it says who it's moderated by, Miranda mm. and Pooja. Then you enter, okay, you're interested in seeing Pooja. You enter my Twitter and what do you see in my bio? Co-founder of Science Networkers. I oversee the social media of Science Slam Canada. And I think a big reason for that is because we want to get credit for the work that we do. We want to show what, what we bring in the community. Even though my Twitter is often used to promote my SciComm material, if you look at my likes, if you look at my retweets, you can see just from there what issues I stand for, what celebrities I'm interested in who I surround myself by. I appreciate people that try to keep it separate, but I think because just in everyday life, we've meshed so much of our personal and professional together that it has automatically come into our virtual life. And it's a big reason why mm -hmm. organizations these days, if you're trying to apply for a job, you've probably noticed on your LinkedIn that you will get a notification being that someone from said organization has viewed your profile because they want to see what you're doing on social media because they know that what you put up as a front professionally is not always who you are personally. And I think mm -hmm. nowadays with work and with brands, people not only want to know what the brand stands for or what the organization stands for, they want to know about the people behind that. So this blurring, you know, even though it, it can make things tricky, in some ways, it's also beneficial. You kind of know who you're looking at. I've pretty much accepted that my personal and professional life is completely mixed together. And that's just the way it is. And I don't think that's going to yeah. stop. That's a good point in terms of you want to see who the creators are. Like you said, you obviously want to, uh, when you promote work that you do, you want to also promote that you are the ones you and Miranda, for example, for your podcast, uh, you are the ones that produce said work. And uh, I actually also find that when I'm, I'm looking at different projects, for example, different podcasts that I am interested in, uh, they might have their own Twitter account. I, I always go to see who uh, who's behind the, the who's behind the mic, like what sort of views that they stand for. Maybe if they if that's what they retweet, like what they do, like what their backgrounds are. That is true that you can't really separate the two because what you do is a part of who you are all the other things that you consider hobbies or just interests of yours are also part of what you do and who you are. So they're all kind of meshing in together. You mentioned you have different social media accounts for science networkers, for example. Uh, how do you use these these platforms differently? Uh, Instagram is obviously more visual-based. Uh, Twitter is, there's a lot of resharing, a lot of uh, commenting, a lot of likes on, on, you can get through Twitter and a massive following through that. So I'm, I'm curious as to how you use these different platforms um, to promote, let's say, an episode of Science Networkers? So one of the most important things when it comes to promoting your work is you need to know where your audience is. For SciComm, for Science Networkers, Science on Canada, we have a Twitter, an Instagram, a Facebook, even a LinkedIn. But the SciComm community is primarily on Twitter. 
So that is what you will see is updated more regularly. That is where we share more of our work. You use the right hashtags, you tag the right people. That is really where we push it out because that is how we reach more people in that community. For my HR side, HR is not really that much on Twitter. That's more of a LinkedIn community. Yeah. I would use my LinkedIn to share work that I'm doing on the HR side, any advancements I've made in that field or things that I'm proud of. Uh, and, and I noticed that even though I have tried to share on multiple platforms, both my SciComm and my HR accomplishments, you, you really see the difference in engagement where people don't really, on Twitter, they don't really respond much to the HR, but any SciComm initiative, they're like all for it and they're retweeting and they're tagging and then vice versa. When I post about science networkers on my LinkedIn, it really doesn't get that much attention. And I mean, science networkers is interesting because it's science HR. So that gets a little bit, but science on Canada, yes. for sure, if I shared on my LinkedIn, it just doesn't get as much attention because that community is not there. That's really interested in that information. So that's probably the number one thing that I really think about when, uh, when promoting my work is where is my audience and what are they responding to? And that includes even considering hashtags. If you hashtag SciComm, that's going to reach a very wide range of audience because there are people in the SciComm community that follow certain hashtags. Coming up with these ideas, I, I watched other SciCommers, uh, those that have a really big following, what are they doing? And I noticed the certain hashtags they were using, the certain accounts they were tagging, you know, copied, pasted, borrowed. Oh, you know, like, don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the tagging and hashtags, super important, I think. Like for myself, even I Googled, you know, what hashtags do I need to put for the, for this sort of material that I want to promote? Mm -hmm. And there's always, a, there's always like this paragraph of hashtags that actually you can't use all of them because either it doesn't fit the character limit or... Uh, I think Instagram has a certain number of hashtags you can have per post. Mm -hmm. um, so you just like pick and choose the ones that are, I guess, more relevant to you. But again, yeah, the tagging and uh, hashtagging, tagging different accounts. Like, for example, uh, for science communication, you could tag, you know, shout outs to <laughs> academic chatter or open academics. Uh, I, I know there's a whole bunch, but those the two that come to mind, uh, they, they seem to retweet and, and like certain posts where they have been tagged and this allows them to or allows your posts to reach hundreds or thousands of followers that they have for sure and something that i kind of brought up earlier which i'll bring in now because i think now is a really good time you know there is sort of this like ugh, reaction to the idea of reaching out to someone and saying hey can you like my yeah. post can you retweet and I understand the hesitation because it sounds really thirsty. It's like, why are you asking me to do? But the way I look at it, at least in the SciComm community, and I can speak from experience because this is what I did with science networkers when we started. You know, the SciComm community, it's a small yet large community and everyone is very supportive of each other. I think there's just this unspoken camaraderie of, we need to work together. Communicating science is not only important for science communicators, but it's important for everybody. So if we can support each other in our initiatives and in creating more of a presence for ourselves, we're going to help each other out. When science networkers, when we were trying to build our brand, I would reach out to uh, science communicators that I knew to say, hey, I'm starting this initiative and I'm hosting this event. Can you like it on Twitter? Can you retweet? Can you share it with your network? My approach to that is the same approach I have to just networking in general. 
is I think a lot of people, when they want to network with somebody, they think, oh, I don't want to seem like an inconvenience. I don't want to seem like I'm bothering the person. But you're not the only one that's gaining something from that network. That other person is gaining something because they're learning about a new person in the space. They're able to be a mentor. They feel flattered because you think that they are worth asking to support. And one fine day, they're very well going to turn to you and say, hey, I need support in a similar way. So some of the people that I had reached out to in early Science Networkers Day, once they saw Science Networkers blow up, have actually reached out to me saying, hey, can you share this? Can you retweet this? Can you, you know, send it to your network and support my initiative? And that is honestly a huge way that I was able to get Science Networkers uh, to really grow. When I took over the Science Slam account, it had already had a pretty good following, but Science mm -hmm. Networkers, we had to start completely from scratch. That was a big strategy I used. I called upon um, my SciComm friends and I said, hey, like you have a really big following and I really need this to be pushed out. And it kind of also helps in the credibility part of things. If, if they believe in your initiative and people who follow them see that, then you're more likely to kind of gain more credibility in the space of, oh, if Alan Shapiro thinks this is a good idea and he <laughs> has a ton of followers, uh, it's probably a good idea. Right. And it, it takes a little bit of, you know, it, it, it can be a bit of an embarrassing thing to do. And I understand that, but I look at it like I look at networking. It's just what you do in order to build your brand and to grow your presence and to also just support each other. I guess reaching out to people, I, I would assume pe most people don't do it because they're, I guess, shy or thinking about the worst possible outcome, which the only thing I can think of is that they say, you know, uh, I would like to kindly decline or <laughs> that's or the, just really the worst thing that can happen or not mm -hmm. respond. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And what I found, I can't speak for other industries, but in SciComm, I've never had a person tell me no. Mm. Everybody has said, yes, I would love to help or I will help in this much of a capacity. You got to approach them in the right way, though. You know, you, you, you got to at least, sure. you know, maybe compliment them a little bit. Never ask someone for a job. Never do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's networking tip number one. But if you say, you know, we're, we're starting this initiative or we have this panel, that's actually how we get a lot of our panelists is I just DM them on Twitter and I say, I followed your work and I think you'd nice. be a great fit. Can we talk about maybe you being a part of our initiative? And people are willing to help each other. And it's scary, but I can honestly say, and, and I'm someone that has felt a lot of insecurity about this because I'm one of the, as far as I know, one of the few people in the SciComm space that is not actually a scientist. I don't, I don't do science professionally. Uh, I got that BSc and I called it a day. But so I, I do feel this insecurity of, are they going to take me seriously? Uh, so, if, so if I'm able to convince people to believe in science networkers and to believe in what I do, I, I think most people will find similar success. I guess your, your experience as well in communicating uh, science uh, through podcasts, through social media. You've had practice in terms of being clear with the message you, you want, right? Like when you reach out to these people, you, you have a goal in mind, you, you're clear about it. Like you said, you have certain ways of, of reaching out to people. You wouldn't ask for a job. You would, um, you know, compliment the work that they do, thus kind of segue into, you know, why you reached out to them to begin with. So I think that's that's definitely important to say that uh, by doing it, you're you're practicing, you're practicing sure. networking, reaching out and, and promoting your work. Again, we talked about techniques. Uh, you mentioned knowing your audience and that's why you you, you see how popular things get on, on social on Twitter for 
your science communication stuff, while your HR stuff, you see more popularity in, in LinkedIn. That's in terms of the audience and in terms of goals and messages, uh, which is something that science communicators or people that teach you how to do science communication uh, in workshops, these goals and messages are, are also very important. So effective science communication, to me, is understanding the best point between accuracy, being very specific about something, and generalizing something to make it more relatable, I would say. But if you have too much accuracy, you kind of lose people in terms of their interest. They get bored, or perhaps they might get even confused. And if yeah. you generalize it too much, again, you can confuse them just the same, or your audience might be, you know, incorrectly assume things and perhaps spread misinformation. That's might be why we see a lot of misinformation spread on social media. And I'm curious at what strategies you employ to get your key message across for the projects that you have. It, it's yes. a really tough tango of, of how do you kind of find that balance. First of all, I think it's really important to get a person's attention uh, just to even because on social media, we're so overloaded with information. And there are so many people trying to pitch their work and what they're doing. And it's how do I even get a person to stop to even consider what I'm talking about? I am a huge fan of visuals. If it's a video, if it's a photo, sometimes even a graphic, they say a picture tells thousand words. And for example, if I'm promoting um, a podcast episode or a panel, if, if I just tweet about it, it doesn't get that much interest. But if I have a photo attached to it, or if I have an audio clip or a video, that gets a ton of likes and a ton of retweets because it's like, ooh, this is pretty cool. Like, let me see what this... You know, I can have an infographic with the exact same information as the tweet or as the post, but people will look at the at the graphic because that looks pretty and that's fun mm -hmm. to read. It's also kind of knowing the balance of, you're right, that accuracy, being accurate, but also not generalizing too much. When it comes to promoting work on social media, my goal is to get people to be, to, I, to get people's attention, but not so much mm -hmm. to make super bold claims in the tweet or in the Facebook post or in the Instagram post. And the reason for that is that number one, people are not, Twitter is smart in this way of 140 characters, even though that can sometimes be very frustrating. People don't want to read a really, really long post on their social media. They are scrolling through social media, probably in class, which they shouldn't be. They're probably in class. They're probably at work. They're probably on transit. They just want to see what's fast. So what I try to do is I try to get people's attention to then click on the link or the video or the podcast episode or the infographic to learn more about what I'm talking about. So I would try to state like a fact from whatever I'm talking about or the most important point, tag people, make the right hashtags and get people in the community to also show that support because that also gains that credibility. Even if even if people don't fully understand the content, if they see that certain people are engaging with it, they will take it more seriously. And a huge important thing is, as I mentioned before, science communication is for everybody. It is not just for scientists. So if you are going to make a post and if you are going to use all this science jargon that nobody understands, people are not going to read your content or that is what how misunderstandings happen. It is okay to simplify the science, or, or at least it, on social media. If, if you're promoting a paper that has technical terms, you know, that's, that's the nature of the paper. But on social media, it's okay to make the language simple. You don't have to use 
very complex words because like people are not going to be interested in that. Uh, it's going to confuse people and it's going to make it so much less accessible than if you were to use something that's a little simpler. And I think that's one of the things that as someone who's not a scientist, that's the one advantage is that I need to make things simpler because I don't always understand when things are very complicated. Right. You know, there are there are times I'm listening to someone, I'm nodding my head and I'm like messaging Miranda being like, what does that mean? I don't understand what this means. So <laughs> kind of so I think it makes it easier for, for, for me. But for somebody who has, you know, a lot of credentials and is maybe used to using more complicated jargon, simplifying it also really helps. And then those misunderstandings that can happen with generalization and accuracy um, are lessened. But it's not a perfect science. Like science, it's not a perfect science. And it's about finding that balance and seeing what works. And it, it is a little bit of trial and error. And I'm curious that, I guess, being being visual, there's a lot of papers now that that come out with, with visual as abstracts. Mm-hmm. So in a previous episode, I've, I've talked about the structure of a scientific paper. And you, you don't normally get, I guess, a visual infographic up front. You get like a big paragraph of a summary of the paper. It might be filled with jargon. It might not be. Typically, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be filled with a, a lot of jargon, but a lot of them are. And that kind of gets people interested in the science and, and reading more into the paper that is just filled with jargon. I'm curious that if you have any um, opinion about papers moving to more graphical abstracts. I love that. I, I love, yeah. because I'll be really honest, and I've said this on my podcast, and, you know, come at me if you want to, I don't love reading a paper with a ton of words, a ton of jargon, a ton of little symbols that I just don't understand. It was one of the things I really struggled with in, in undergrad, and it's something that I still struggle with now. I love when things are are moving into a more graphic space where you can see really pictorially, what are you talking about? What does this look like? One, I, I think it helps, it allows peop- more people to be in the SciComm space. You know, you're not just talking yeah. to scientists now. You need your graphic designers. You need people who have that visual eye to, to really communicate the information in different ways. And again, I think that's one of the amazing things about SciComm is that so many different talents can come in to communicate this message. And when you have more people that are able to enter the space, that's more people that are interested in what you're talking about and are able to spread the science to their communities. You know, you might hire on a graphic designer who doesn't know a thing about science, but as they're working with you to communicate that information, they'll get interested in the science and they'll spread it on to their other friends. And that kind of helps expand the space. Using different methods, I still do find Papers are obviously important, you know, that works for that works for a certain audience. Science communication is about making it accessible. And this is one more way to make it accessible to someone like me who doesn't totally understand the paper, something I can see visually. And it's really great for social media. You pop up that graphic, that visual that immediately gets more attention than just a bunch of text. Or I think sometimes people will link their paper and then and then it'll just show a paper on Twitter or on on a different form of social media. Which helps, but a fun graphic always gets more attention. Definitely good for promotion and in terms of bringing people, you know, making them interested in science. And I know that for a fact that everybody is interested in science, no matter what profession, no matter what they study, no matter where they come from, everybody's interested in scientific discoveries. The most interesting bits are just always like in the middle of 
this this large amount of text. It's mm-hmm. it's always just like hidden there, the, that hidden gem. The, these sorts of visual things that you talked about, um, even audio cues, um, like like a snippet of the podcast episode or for promoting this episode, I, I always do like a snippet video of, of um, you know, interesting things that we've discussed. And that, that sort of gets m- much more promotion or uh, more people are getting involved in it versus um, th- those those like word tweets that I that I have that are maximizing the 140 character limit. Yeah, it gets more engagement and it's so That's it's true. so much more fun to watch and it makes it more personable too. And I think especially now and everybody hates to say because of COVID, but because of COVID, we're looking for ways to relate more to each other. We're we're looking yes. for even in a way some distraction from all the from all the noise of of COVID and AstraZeneca and vaccine and Mm. and you you may be so if if there's any way to make science more fun or to make your content more fun and videos and visuals that's fun that's what people like to see being a science communicator yourself there's obviously different methods of delivering your message Um, there's also different methods of obtaining information for your own benefit so i'm curious that what's your most preferred delivery of science communication on social media is that through your podcast is that through um you know tweeting about things um i love my podcast i i think it it kind of comes from a desire of wanting to be a talk show host (laughs) Um, (laughs) but i really enjoy communicating through through the podcast because again it feels more personable it feels like you're you're having a conversation with somebody, it's a really great way to collaborate. You know, it's not just me and Miranda. And on your podcast, it's not just you. You have other voices in there and it, it makes it more creative. It, it involves more people. I also find it's extremely accessible. People, you don't need to be sitting to listen to a podcast. People listen to podcasts on their way to work. People listen to podcasts at work or while they're cooking and just to know that it's it's so much easier to spread a message it's why i i really love podcasts and it's a really great skill to have and it's a great way to practice your public speaking even though it's not in front of an audience uh it utilizes different skills that i think sometimes as scientists uh we maybe don't think of during our undergrad or during our masters or even phd you know i think we're in the la- for me i was in the labs or i was in the classroom and it was writing papers it was doing research but there's this whole skill set of communicating and of talking and of how do you vary your voice how do you ask engaging questions like you are right now and i think that's a really fascinating part of podcasting is that it allows you to develop these other skills and make you more well-rounded as a science communicator and just as a person. And podcasting, yes, I don't have the fanciest of technologies, but it is something if you want to enter the space, even if it ends up even if it doesn't make you a dime, you know, it's a space that's open to everybody. That somebody will listen to your podcast. Somebody will relate to the material you're talking about. It doesn't discriminate. It's, you know, if, if you if you have something that people want to listen to, they'll listen. I'm waiting for an episode where you, you do uh, another rap. Oh, boy. <laughs> I've been asked that a few times. Uh, you know what? It's in the works. It's in the works. I, I feel like I need to, I feel like I need to redeem myself after that, that last rap I did in Sign Slam, because actually while <laughs> I was performing it, I could not hear myself. And I'm like, oh, God, it, that's oh, why no. I never promote it. And I'm very upset that you found it but that's okay <laughs> that's okay i'm glad that that that'll promoted through through this 
<laughs> the first one is better, I swear. Yeah, check out both of them. And I'm curious if this is different than your preferred method of collecting information. So you said the podcast, you like, that's how you like to deliver science communication. How do you like obtaining science information? So I have a couple. One, I do also love podcasts. I love your podcast. Nice. Hey. Uh, you have a very, you have a very nice podcast voice. So it's actually like quite <laughs> nice to listen to. Again, so much flattery. Um, Nerdin' About is a really awesome podcast. So mm. that's run by yep. Nerd Night YBR. Uh, they are really fantastic. But I also really love videos. So I think some of my favorite is Avo Media. So Jesse and Lucas, they also have a podcast called Science Telephone. They also have great podcast voices, but they make videos. And I love seeing things visually. What they did is British Columbia had an election back in October and it was it was a it was this COVID election that a lot of people didn't understand where the party stood and why this election was happening. And even though it's it wasn't science, they did relate it back to science and where they stood on those issues. It's it's important to everybody and politics affects science and where they stand on certain issues. They made this video with all these graphics. Oh my goodness, I shared that everywhere because it was so informative because it was short, it was sweet, but it explained everything that you could have also obtained that same information in a really long article, but this was more fun. I'm someone that's not only a visual learner, I'm an audio learner. So somebody actually explaining to me, this is why the election's happening. This is where the party stands uh, was really helpful. And in my undergrad, I used to watch, did you ever watch Crash Course videos with Hank Green? Oh, I still do. <laughs> I love Hank Green and I love that whole Crash Course uh, it, it saved me in undergrad because, again, reading heavy textbooks, trying to obtain this information, especially in my physiology courses, was really, really difficult for me. I just the, the visuals in the book were not that helpful. And there was just so much tech. And most of my professors were very bad lecturers. So I would watch their videos to try to learn the basics of the different systems. And Hank Green is phenomenal at what he does. So I, I love videos and I love podcasts. And this is the direction that people are people are going these days. I know something we talk about a lot is about using TikTok to communicate science. I know as a millennial, sometimes TikTok is like, oh Lord, I'm way too old for this. But there are people going on TikTok, communicating science, getting so many views, similar to how you have to meet your audience where they're at using Twitter for SciComm, LinkedIn for HR. You also have to be up with the times with how people are learning. And this is how people are learning. They're watching videos and they're listening to podcasts. That's how people are getting their information these days. So to kind of follow along with that is, is an important thing to do. I'm glad you mentioned Crash Course. That's definitely something that saved me in my in my undergrad. And, and Khan Academy as well is another um, yeah. kind of video-based video platform. They, they kind of use a, a chalkboard sort of format. But the, the lecturers on there are, are phenomenal. They... They really are good at communicating, and the pacing of these lessons are definitely spot on. Like they, they don't go too fast, don't go too slow. It's it's very um, visual based, and definitely helps a, a lot of students. And not just in, I they're based in America. I think I, I know that they've helped millions of students worldwide. So uh, it, it's great you mentioned that. And in terms of TikTok as well, and I, I recalling back being a part of your podcast and how I. <laughs> 
said I didn't like TikTok uh, at the time. So that was maybe five, six months ago uh, when we when we had that um, just the interview between us three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said I said I didn't like TikTok, but the more I think about it, it's it's exactly like you said. You you're you're just kind of even though your audience that you're going towards might not be there, um, you're just using it as a platform, and perhaps it might connect with people that weren't initially part of your audience, but now they are because now they're interested in what you have to say based on the 60 second video that you created. Um, for example, one person I follow is Darian Nguyen, who is his, his tag is at lap shenanigans. And I first heard about him through Instagram. And then I followed him on Twitter because that's mainly the social media I use. But he's very active on TikTok and he has uh, amassed a following on there of people who are not necessarily in the scientific field, but the way he kind of connects cultural references to things that happen in terms of science, uh, you know, molecular biology, even immunology, uh, it's really connected with people and now they're interested in science. So yeah, exactly like you said, these, these sorts of things might not have an audience there. You could have an audience by just promoting something on it and then now people that weren't initially interested in science now are interested. I'm, I'm curious at what other accounts that you follow. You mentioned uh, Crash Course, that was one. Uh, you mentioned Avo Media and Lucas and Jesse, like great people um, to have talked to during that panel as well. Um, Jesse even showing us how he, how he makes these sorts of videos and yeah, episodes. Yeah, that was cool. That was really cool. Um, a lot of work, but... <laughs> Definitely something uh, I c- you can see it or sorry, you can listen to it. You can listen to the how hard they work at by creating these episodes. Very, very good um, in terms of audit- auditory sound effects and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those two are, are great science communicators. Same with Nicole, who was also part of that um, yeah. panel as well. Uh, so I'm curious about what other accounts that you follow. ASAP Science. ASAP they science, are yeah. so much fun. Uh, and again, like making science fun, making it relatable. They they right. both, I think they're actually on TikTok and they post really fun TikToks or shorts of explaining science in just a really fabulous way. That's so much fun to watch. But then they also write really meaningful tweets that I follow and I really enjoy reading and it gets people thinking. And again, they know how to have fun with it. Nerd Night, Nerdin' About, I really love their events when it was, in person, but now that things are virtual, you know, they've kind of found a way to kind of bring those same speakers into a virtual space. And the Nerd Night account itself is just, you know, they they find really cool ways to engage with people by asking on Twitter and also on Instagram, what are what are you nerding about? What are you interested in? Which I also think is a really important strategy is asking your audience, what do you want to know about from us or from the people that we're bringing in? Do you have any questions? Uh, and we try to do that also in Science Networkers. At the end of the day, if you're delivering something that people don't want to see, then that's really missing the point. And if you allow people to kind of voice their opinions, then you can cater what you're doing to your audience. And I really appreciate that Nerd Night does that very well. In terms of other accounts, also the, the individual people who run Nerd Night, Kaylee and Michael, uh, their own individual accounts, I also really enjoy reading. Off the top of my head, I think even Peter, who was on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like following his tweets, and, and he's really good with the visuals. I think he's a photographer, yes. and he takes really good yes. photos of bees and 
it's uh, I really enjoy looking at that, and that's uh, yeah, that's that's what I enjoy. All those people I, I also follow on 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 Twitter, and I, I've started to also follow people on Instagram as well, based on the the Metaphorogens account that I have. It kind of helps me, gives me ideas on how to deliver the messages I want to deliver. Uh, obviously, in a, in my own innovative or, or creative way, kind of like brainstorms ideas on how to um, grab people's attention. I think that's that's mainly what we're trying to do when we when we look to these people. Peter, again, yeah, he he's he's a great science communicator, someone I follow. Um, Tim Urban, who who does the Wait But Why blog, he's someone I follow. Uh, I don't know if you follow um, Michael Stevens, who does the Vsauce channel. I don't think so. Oh okay, my so, so he, he's <laughs> somebody that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's somebody who actually he, he does such weird videos, and that that's what I love. Like I love, I love when you do something so bizarre that has meaning to it in the sort of scientific the scientific space. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Michael Stevens on Vsauce and and Simone Gertz, who you might know, she she's on YouTube, who creates a lot of. Like crappy robots. That's how she. That's how she get amassed a following. And the videos that she makes are hilarious, but also kind of teach you on how to how she made these robots. A, a bit about physics. Yeah, it's it sort of dived more into her personal life as of recently, but it just kind of teaching you um, these sorts of things is in a unique way. That that's what I love. That's why I love following those sorts of people. For sure. And you also cannot forget the OG Bill OG. Nye. Of course. Oh my goodness, his videos on that VHS player, and I was who I wanted to be when I as a science communicant. Like I want to be the next oh, yeah. Bill Nye, and I think I actually said that in one of my raps. Like I'm going to be your modern day Bill Nye. So, <laughs> but I mean, he's still relevant. He's still finding his ways Super to communicate relevant. science, keeping up with the times. Can't forget about him. He's still doing fabulous work. And he's on like he's on every platform. I think he's on TikTok for sure, which I would assume is like the newest platform. I could be <laughs> wrong, but he is on TikTok. He's on Twitter, Instagram. He has his own podcast. That's how we I all kind of started. He had a Netflix special at one point, or he had some he sort of special. Yes, he 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 is who I aspire to be. I can't rock the bow tie quite like he can, but. <laughs> I'm curious at what your favorite feature of social media is. So the examples I, I gave her were Twitter's retweet function, Facebook's like button, uh, Reddit's upvote feature. You know, every sort of platform has their has their thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious at what what your favorite feature in a social media platform is. I love the ability to block people. <laughs> Okay, 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 well, I'm only half kidding. But uh, I do love Sorry that. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, um, my more serious answer. <laughs> Blocking people is amazing, okay, Kevin? Sometimes oh, good, people just sure. need it. <laughs> In terms of, I guess, a more traditional answer. For me, I even though I don't really use this platform as much anymore, I really like Facebook's like button because... Okay now or i guess now it's called a react button because you can like it or you can yeah, true. you know put a heart or a care or angry face and the reason i like that because i have to really think about this answer and the reason i like that's because that is one feature that other at least the social media that i've been exposed to don't have except maybe linkedin the thing is is i always felt really uncomfortable when people would post really tragic news 
or like a sad update in your life and you want to show support, but you like it, like it just it. felt yeah. very uncomfortable. So the fact that now if someone posts something that, you know, is maybe bad news or they're looking for support, you don't have to like it. You can <laughs> give them a heart. You can give them the care. You can give them the crying eyes and show that like, I'm here for you. I enjoy it. And I also, f I find it so amusing if I, because you can also do this in, in messaging as well. And that's primarily what I use Facebook for is if you send maybe like, Oh, I'm having a really bad day today and they try to react to it, but they accidentally give the wrong reaction. And then they're trying so quickly oh, yeah. to give the right reaction. I think it's that just makes me feel better when I'm having a bad day. I'm like, wow, because like, you can <laughs> tell that they're probably thinking, oh, no, and like trying to fix it because with your thumb, yeah. it's so easy to mess up. Right. So that's for me. I, I like the and blocking people. I am too. <laughs> I do enjoy blocking. And the people. blog. Uh, do, do you have like a one that you don't like very much? I don't know. If this is a feature or some sort. I hate that Twitter doesn't let you edit your tweets. I yes. Make okay. That's like number one. Yeah. And, and they they are such trolls about it. They tweet from the Twitter account. They will tweet about, haha, you guys want the ability to edit your tweets. Well, you're not going to get that. There would literally be times where I would tweet something. It would be a super successful tweet. And then I realized that I either I missed somebody in the tweet. I forgot to tag somebody or I forgot the hashtag. And then I had to delete and edit the tweet. And then the, the new tweet doesn't get as much attention. And you're like, oh, darn. If they just let me edit it, then it. Twitter, if you're listening to this, please. I think they very intentionally don't allow you to edit. And, and I think that's what's landed some people in some trouble is the fact that oh, yeah. you can't edit your tweet. That is definitely, I, I, I wish Twitter allowed that. Every other platform lets you edit. Although nowadays, if you edit, it shows that you edit it. So other social media yes. accounts, will still they will still call you out that you had to edit, but at least they let you do so. That's definitely better. I, I think it's better that they show that it's been edited versus um, you're able to edit, but then you don't say, it. there's no way of knowing that this person changed what they said. Transparency, that's fair. Yeah. Transparency. And I, I guess that's um, just what you said about why Twitter doesn't want people to do that, because then people aren't held accountable for, for the things that they say. For, for me, I guess my favorite feature, which you might not like because it's on the platform you don't you don't like very much, it is uh, Reddit, Reddit's upvote. What is that? Like, is that just like the showing like your... I like steered clear from Reddit and yeah. maybe I should get on it, but I really steered clear from it. Is that just like you're showing support perfect. for something someone said? Like, is it like a like button or... But yeah, so it, it is basically like a like button and why I think it's it's better than the like button because um, you can choose on Reddit, you can choose certain what are called subreddits to follow, which are just groups or forums that, that post certain things that interest you. Anyone can post anything on, on, these, on these subreddits. People can comment on them, people can upvote for them or downvote them. The, the purpose of that is, technically speaking, the ones that are more upvoted are the ones that are the most interesting thing that was posted and are normally fact checked in a way. Oh, I so see. so you might you might see like at the top of your subreddit, it will be usually organized by um, on that day which whichever post had the most upvotes, and then you can click on that post, read whatever the post is about. You go to the comments, and then normally, if it's top of the list, it's it's like a real thing that happened. Like a it's it's not a 
it's not misinformation it's not a lie so i I think that kind of curates the misinformation kind of i mean it's still reddit so there's going to be misinformation on there uh, or it's still social media but um, because of these upvotes or downvotes even so if it's something is downvoted it's usually not very interesting doesn't fit the subreddit Mm. or it's it's not validated by something or someone and what about your least favorite i didn't have much time to think about (laughs) it i was just curious what you would say (laughs) i mean let me think for a second I really don't, I also don't like how you can't edit your things on Twitter, but then I also, like I said earlier, understand why they don't allow you to do that. I, I will say that one thing I also don't like, and maybe you can you will agree with this, and actually a celebrity who will be unnamed did say, imagine if on your social media, imagine if on Instagram, the like option was not there. So people just mm. posted what they wanted and no one could like it. Because yeah. in, in some case, almost the like button, even though it's an important feature, is also almost kind of a big reason why, I guess, you and I don't post that much on our personal accounts is because of the right. pressure of the like button. And it was a very interesting thought that this celebrity had. How would you change your social media behavior if the like button wasn't a thing, if you could just post what you wanted? In a way, almost the like button is also one of my least favorites. But it was a very interesting point that the celebrity made. I was like, oh yeah, I would definitely post so much more freely if the like button didn't exist. But I understand why right. it does. And I know that when Instagram... I don't know if this is a worldwide thing, but Instagram has now, you can't see how many people like a a certain post. I know a lot of influencers were very upset by it because they felt like it it kind of showed their popularity. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know what you think about that. But yeah, I guess also on top of the Twitter not being able to edit, at times I really dislike the like button because I feel like it puts Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure. But I get why it's there and like it should remain there. Just as I was thinking about that, the, the tallying of these sorts of like validation or confidence booster or the, like the number of likes you get. Like I, I don't think I have a problem with likes, but I guess putting a, a, an actual number on it or the actual number of friends or, or followers you have and, and that sort of influences how people think about your account. That's something I have a problem with. I don't know if there's any way to honestly get around that. Um, based on how social media is structured now. But just like the automatic influence of this number of likes or followers, and that sort of impacts how you think about this account. I, I really don't like that. So I would say, I guess that that number is something I, I really dislike. I also don't really like stories either. And I, I know you mentioned you do I like stories. I find it weird that uh, you would want to post something that disappears. Okay, okay, I can see that. I get it. For me, I, again, sometimes I don't feel totally confident enough to post it on my actual feed, but I do want to show it off a little bit. And the thing with stories is, is that only the ones who actually, like, really care about your account, which is your closest friends... Uh, we'll we'll see it. So it's kind of a fast way to spread something. And and the fact that it only lasts for 24 hours, you can save your stories now, and it can actually show up on your okay. profile. So but I, I do kind of I do kind of see like, yeah, it's a little bit. Why would you not just post it? permanently yeah but um, just just my opinion though obviously for it's, sure for everyone sure. everyone does it differently i i did add one more question to the list uh oh, okay. before we started talking uh it's like more of a philosophy question <laughs> okay bring it on <laughs> so, so based on like what we talked about i'm curious at where do you see social media going do you see it 
in terms of an, like a novel, innovative platform coming out, almost like TikTok, which to me is just a, a longer version of Vines, which already existed beforehand. Now they don't exist anymore. To me, TikTok is it's not very novel, but it, it did come out and it and exploded onto the scene. Did you see... Uh, like a missing link in terms of social media now and something might come in to to fill that gap where do you see social media going that is a philosophical question where do i see social media going it is true i think more and more people are thinking of different ways to stay connected different ways to show your interest and i i do think the ideas are running low. I don't know where it's where it's going to go. I, I think it's going to take some more innovative minds to really come up with new ways of staying connected. But at the same time, I think we are also moving into a space where people are starting to recognize the downsides of social media. And I think there's going to be more and more conversations around how we can set those boundaries and kind of balance our use and how it affects us. I feel like social media really represents how we as humans just interact with each other in general. I think it just made it more mm -hmm. obvious. For example, like when we when we were just talking about likes and how many followers you have and how if you have more likes, you take that person more seriously. But even before social media, if someone had a certain number of friends, wouldn't you maybe think, oh, they must be a cool person because they have like, like a thousand friends all around them. Or, you know, they took a really nice photo, they must be really pretty, or they, it, it's a way of, we as humans, how we judge people. And it, it, it is also a science of how we differentiate what's cool and what's not and what's safe and what's not. I don't know what new inventions of social media are going to come to a head, but I definitely think it's, people are going to become more and more aware of how social media really reflects us as a society. And I think that is going to be a really interesting development in science to really evaluate how we all are as people. Because I, I do truly believe that social media is just kind of this pictorial or visual representation of just how we are as society. If social media wasn't a thing, there would be some other way that we would validate each other, how we would judge each other. That's where I see social media going. I think it's going to be very deeply studied. I think it's going to reflect more about who we are as people beyond what we see currently and it's exciting but it's also very scary watch out <laughs> yeah. yeah be scared i i that that is that's where i i see social media heading an important thing that you mentioned is that it's now being studied it's, it's being studied by like scientists psychologists people in neuroscience um how it affects the brain definitely going to be some some new advancement in in, in terms of how social media is, is changing us physically and mentally. For sure. I mean, just to point out, how many times do people go somewhere and they immediately think that would be a nice place to Instagram? That's a really nice place. Ooh, the lighting is so good. Like, it's really, it's almost frightening, actually, to see that. But but it, it I think it reflects on who we are. As people, we look for opportunities. We, we And that is what we do in our lives. And it's what we do on social media. And it I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but I think it just reflects on who we are. So, all right, that's uh, that's basically all the questions I had for Pooja. Um, normally, tour at the end of these interviews, uh, again, I'd be just you almost did actually for that for that last question, <laughs> but uh, we kind of just summarize our our final thoughts based on what we talked about, social media in general, uh, social media in terms of science communication, um, in terms of promoting. Um, the work that you do. So yeah, just some final thoughts on social media and of course, self-promotion in terms of the groups that you're involved in. Social media is important. 
it's it's what it's how people stay connected it's how people find out their information it's just important to know how to make it work for you it's about setting those boundaries if if it means not having certain accounts if it means blocking people if it means uh you know having separate accounts to do what works for you but it, it is something in the SciComm space. It is important to have social media. It's important to know where your audience is and what they respond to. Do your research on what other people do. Don't be afraid to ask for support and for help. It's also a tip in networking. It's the HR person in me that's encouraging you to network because mm-hmm. it's so important. It's going to be interesting to see what happens moving forward and keep your eyes and ears open. As for myself, if you'd like to follow me on social media and see the stuff that I'm up to, you can follow at SciSlamCA on all social media platforms. Uh, you can follow at SciNetworkers on Twitter and at ScienceNetworkers on Instagram and LinkedIn. And for me, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Also follow me on Twitter. It's at Puya Bahati. That's a whole nother Metaphorogen's episode on how that name came out to be, but on Twitter and on Instagram, I'll, I'll list all those in the in the podcast description. And just to reiterate on SciSlam, I'm also part of SciSlam uh, Canada as well as a policy coordinator. So uh, we're starting to vamp up, revamp, or I guess the structure in terms of how SciSlam Canada is going to be uh, going moving forward starting this year. Um, so definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. And I just wanted to uh, mention when your, or wanted you to mention when your, your latest panel discussion will be, do you know when it will be uploaded? So it'll be uploaded in the next couple of weeks. We are a little bit, uh, all of us that work at Science Networkers, uh, work in some form of government and it is year end. So we're a little bit running behind, but it should be up in the next couple of weeks. And Miranda and I have some really exciting projects for Science Networkers and actually outside of Science Networkers that we're working on. So definitely check us out uh, to stay posted. Awesome. Cool. Cool. So we'll definitely keep keep us updated on that through your your social media feeds. Again, thank thank you so much, uh, Pooja, for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, again, it was an easy choice for, for this for this podcast episode topic and for just being a part of the mid season mid season special episode. So you have your own, basically your own special episode for Yay. <laughs> Origins podcast. So, uh, I feel like I've definitely. made it. So <laughs> thank you. I sincerely mean this, though, because being a guest on someone's podcast is a bucket list item of mine, and you've made that come true. So I really appreciate it. Follow Kevin on social media. So <laughs> make sure you do that. And thank and you, also, and thank you for what you do. You're also the first to be a part of this new Dublin setup, so you say that's another first. Yes. <laughs> I feel very special. Thank you for that. No problem. Uh, yeah, so Dan, follow Pooja on, on all her social media feeds, which will be listed in the description. And um, thank you so much. Yay, thank you. And thank you for listening to this special mid-season episode of the Metaphorogen's podcast. For another update, I have officially moved into a more permanent residence in Dublin, so definitely check out the new makeshift podcast setup when I post a picture of it on the Instagram page. It will certainly demonstrate that you don't need much to perform any similar project of yours. More updates will be given via bits and pieces throughout the season, so stay tuned and hope you enjoy this exciting escapade. Remember to follow the Instagram page for these visual updates, as well as to be entered into the draw for the custom butterfly-printed Metaphorogen shirt, 
which will be given out on the 30th episode. But until then, stay skeptical, but curious.